Culture Affidavit, episode 143, JL May, 2023, The Brave and the Bold. Hello and welcome to episode 143 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and welcome to JL May 2023. As you might remember, back in 2021, I took part of what is an annual tradition in this small corner of the podcasting universe, in which I'm a part of where a bunch of us have a unifying theme throughout the month of May that centers around the Justice League of America. Back in 2021, the theme for that was Countdown to Infinite Crisis, and my particular episode focused on the miniseries The Return of Donna Troy. This time around, we're doing something a little less ambitious, but still as fun, the 2007 version of DC's classic team-up title The Brave and the Bold. Each podcast is taking a look at exactly one issue of that series, which ran for 35 issues, and I'm covering number 10, which features the Challengers of the Unknown, Superman and the Silent Knight, and the original Teen Titans and Aquaman. But first, I'm going to take a quick break and play the trailer for JL May 2023, so you can hear all about it. So check it out, and then come back. just when you thought it was safe to hear a podcast promo. Brave and bold, comic books, JL May. JL May, brave and bold, comic books, JL May. JL May do 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 Brave and the Bold do 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 Comic books do 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 JL May JL May do 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 The annual podcast crossover event celebrating the Justice League is back and we're covering the 2007 Brave and the Bold series that started with Mark Wade and George freaking Perez and ended with J. Michael Straczynski Throughout the month of May, participating podcasts will release special episodes on issues in the run. It all kicks off in the Overlooked Dark Knight podcast. Follow the event on social media using the hashtag JLMay2023. Coming this May. JLMay do 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 Brave and the Bold do 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 Comic Book do 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 Mephisto. Hey! That it? Is that what you want? Things I do for this show. So when I was asked to participate in this crossover, I jumped at the chance for two reasons. The first is the obvious one. I was going to have a chance to cover the issue that guest starred the Teen Titans. The second, though, is that I've always loved The Brave and the Bold as a team-up series. Issue number 182 of the original series, which was a team-up between Batman and the Earth-2 Robin, was one of my earliest comics. 
and over the years I've enjoyed reading an issue of the old series whenever I've come across them, whether it be in trade paperback, online, or in a quarter bin. In fact, I think that's my favorite place to find them, those quarter bins, because the series is basically a one-and-done affair, and they make for some great back-issue reading. Anyway, when I saw that DC was reviving the title in 2007, and the creative team was going to consist of Mark Wade and George Perez, I was really excited. At the time, DC was going through its post-Infinite Crisis period and was getting close to the end of 52. That was the weekly series that would be a huge success both critically and commercially. Of course, 52 led into Countdown, Countdown's a Final Crisis, as it would eventually be called, and I really don't want to get into that. But this, this title had a creative team that I loved, and it looked like good old-fashioned fun superhero comics. For some reason, I only bought the first few issues before I completely lost track of the series. I don't think I meant to deliberately drop it. I think maybe what happened was that I got caught up in other events like what was going on in Green Lantern, what was going on in the Teen Titans, and that weekly countdown series. So I probably dropped this for financial reasons. But a few years ago, I found the first two reprint volumes of this series, one in trade and one in hardcover, on a discount rack. And forgive me if I don't remember where I got it. It was either at my LCS or it was at a comics show. But I picked them up, and they did not disappoint. So our story for our issue is titled... Well, it's not. It's simply entitled. It's, it's issue number 10 of The Brave and the Bold. And our creative team is Mark Wade and George Perez. Storytellers, inks by Bob Wyacek, colors by Tom Smith, letters by Rob Lay. Stephanie Buscema was the assistant editor, and Joey Cavalieri was your editor. Superman, created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Aquaman, created by Paul Norris. The cover is by George Perez with colors by Bob Smith, and it's a split screen. On the left are Superman and the Silent Knight. They're standing in front of a medieval castle with swords and shields raised. And Superman's shield is basically one giant big S symbol. It's a great touch. The right-hand side shows Aquaman and Aqualad urgently swimming toward us under the water, while above them, Kid Flash races along the water's surface. Wonder Girl glides through the air, and Robin rides his Robin jet ski. We open to the exact same place where we left off in issue 9, and that's the laboratory of the Challengers of the Unknown. The Book of Destiny has come alive, and it has taken the form of some sort of huge monster, attacking the Challengers while yelling, Magistus! It's standing over the unconscious body of Ace, and has June in its right hand while ready to attack the others with its left. On the pages that make up its body are images and times of places in the DCU, many of which we'll see throughout this and other issues in the series. The team manages to escape the lab and hop in their jet, the Galloper, and takes off, blasting the book monster apart with its pages. Once everything settles down, they get out and discover that underneath all the pages was the warlock of Yis a villain who made his first appearance way back in 1966 in Green Lantern Volume 2, number 42. Apparently, Magistus, who seems to be the big bad of this series, had him stealing ancient star charts, but he was stopped in the previous issue by Adam and Hawkman. And Magistus, apparently, is an ancient alchemist who has been stealing things and people of great transformative power. The challengers conclude what that what the book was doing wasn't attacking them, but trying to get their attention. 
because they spot one particular page and are aghast, saying, if Magistus gets his hands on that, then it's game over. They hop in the galloper and take off. We are then taken through one of those pages and transported back to medieval England, and we meet a stable boy named Brian, who has a secret identity of the Silent Knight. He's important to the history of Brave and the Bold because the Silent Knight made his first appearance in the original series' very first issue. This was in a story that was written by Robert Kaniger and drawn by Irv Novick. Brian is watching the champion after champion of the kingdom getting knocked aside by an unknown and very powerful opponent in combat. The challenger wants to face the kingdom's mightiest knight. Brian gawks at the scene and then is mocked and shoved aside by Sir Oswald Bane and told to get back to his stable. He then retreats into the woods and puts on the armor of the Silent Knight. He returns to the field of battle and challenges this mysterious opponent, whom we soon discover is Superman. Superman seems to be acting strange, at least to us, the reader, who doesn't know why he's challenging medieval knights to combat. But once he confirms that he is, in fact, fighting the Silent Knight, Superman flies Brian away and into the woods. When they get there, Superman apologizes for the theatrics, but he says it was necessary to draw him out. He's there at the behest of Merlin, who has asked him to protect the Silent Knight at all costs. They then go on a quest for something called the Golden Eye of Ephron, which is a magic bauble that they find sitting in the middle of an icy lake. Why do they need it? Well, they need to get a hold of it before another magician named Magistus can steal it. The Golden Eye, however, is guarded by an enormous dragon who fires Breath of Ice. Superman gets hit head-on, but the knight avoids the blast and then moves in for the attack. Superman wants him to run, but he decides not to abandon his ally. Instead, he picks up Superman's shield and marches toward him. So in order to assist the silent knight, a very cold Superman uses his heat vision to give the knight a red aura, which he uses as, quote, the fire of victory, getting through the cold blast and finding the eye. When he does, he throws his sword into it. The dragon tries to kill the knight with his tail, but Superman makes a quick move and takes the blow, saving him. After the dragon falls into the lake and is never seen again, the silent knight thanks Superman for saving him, and Superman replies that he's glad Merlin had him looking out for the knight, and it was an honor to fight alongside him. He then asks the silent knight his name. Brian, he replies. Brian Kent. Superman smiles, picks up his shield and sword, and disappears, presumably heading back to the present. Pages of the Book of Destiny fly across the panels again, and we're transported to Atlantis as it would have been portrayed in DC's Silver Age. On this particular day, Garth, a.k.a. Aqualad, is excited that his best friends, the Teen Titans, are coming to visit him to attend the royal wedding of Aquaman and Mira. Garth is excited to see his best friends, although Wally West snottily remarks that, dude, we were on like one case together, and Garth swims away upset. Aquaman demands the Teen Titans tell him what they just said to him, and Robin says they'll help find him. Then the JLA arrives to the wedding, just as Aquaman and the Titans swim away. Garth has headed off beyond the bounds of Atlantis and is soon by captured by the tentacles of hard water that are commanded by Oceanus, an Aquaman villain who made his first appearance in issue number 18 of Aquaman's first series, and that was published in 1964. Oceanus is working with and seems to be controlled by Magistus, and he monologues that he has captured Aqualad because he wants the latent magical powers that Garth has. 
Of course, Agarth does not know about these magical powers. He won't have them until he becomes Tempest later on in his adulthood. But Oceanus and Magistus don't care. They want the magic so they can take advantage of some sort of huge collision of the cosmos that is coming. But before they can do anything else, Aquaman and the Titans show up with an army of sea creatures. They take care of Oceanus quickly with Aquaman attacking directly and the Titans coming from behind, eventually tying him up with Wonder Girl's lasso. Kid Flash points out to Robin that he's a natural leader and should lead the Titans, and Aquaman interrogates their captured foe. Oceanus pleads for help, saying he was being controlled. Aquaman asks a name, and all Oceanus has to say is Red Earth, while his eyes show a scene of death and destruction, and he then dies. They bury his body on the floor of the ocean, and the Titans reconcile with Aqualad, who offers to give them a tour of Atlantis. Finally, we're back with the Challengers of the Unknown, who have arrived at Edwards Air Force Base, or what used to be Edwards Air Force Base. It looks like Magistus sent somebody to completely wreck it, but never actually got his hands on what he was after. And that is Hal Jordan's Green Lantern power battery, which was sitting where he always left it when flying planes, in his locker. They examine it up close, and June asks, All that power, why would Magistus leave it behind? And from inside the battery comes a voice saying, who says he did? And then an obviously possessed metamorpho punches his way through the power battery. To be continued. It pretty much goes without saying that I loved this issue. I mean, the creative team alone should have been a tell. Mark Wade, George Perez, yes please. In fact, I don't know if they had worked together very much before this. While Bob Wyacek had done some of work for DC before, I was mostly familiar with his inking work for Marvel, mainly for the Uncanny X-Men and X-Factor back in the 80s. He's a really good compliment for Perez, who is always great, but doesn't work well with everyone who inks him. Perhaps Wyacek's experience inking such a wide variety of comics greats, Carmine Infantino, Walt Simonson, Paul Smith, Todd McFarlane, John Byrne, John Romita Jr., almost guarantees that he's going to fit well with the pencils of someone like Perez. So the issue itself. The Challengers of the Unknown are a set of characters that I'm only familiar with on a cursory level. I first encountered them in Crisis on Infinite Earths, and beyond their who's who entries and a couple of appearances in DC crossovers, I've never gone back and read their original adventures or any of their new stuff. But being that they are very human characters who take strange and dangerous phenomena head-on, having them be the center of the framing device here works really well, especially since they wind up bridging the issues throughout the series. And the concept that the Book of Destiny has come to life and now we're seeing its various pages through the adventures in this issue is a great idea as well. It gives Wade and Perez a chance to play in different eras and not be so slavish to DC's then-current continuity, which in 2007 wasn't particularly a mess yet, but it was about to get very annoying because of books like Countdown. Wade and Perez could just really enjoy what they were doing here, and I think that sets this series apart in a major way. Plus, the DCU was showing quite a bit of its darker side at the time, and while it hadn't been operating at the depths that it was just prior to Infinite Crisis, there is plenty of really dark stuff, such as the Sinestro Core War 
and upcoming series like Final Crisis and then Blackest Night and then like JLA Cry for Justice. And these things were on the horizon. So this issue, as well as the Brave and the Bold series as a whole, would be a nice, solidly superhero book with a lot of light. Now, what about our stories? Well, in a fashion much like the early days of the title, Wade and Perez take advantage of their Book of Destiny concept to make this an anthology book. The two stories don't relate to one another at all except for the presence of Magistus, and that makes the comic strong as a result. The callback to the very first issue of the very first series with the Silent Knight is a great one, and I love seeing Superman with a sword and a literal S shield. In fact, it's a bit of a throwback to stories published in the Golden and Silver Age that featured superheroes traveling back in time to places like this, as fantasy stories like King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table were still very popular for children. And the method by which Superman shows up is nice and easy to explain. Simply put, Merlin showed up, threw him back in time, and said that the Silent Knight was going to need his help. Superman is a person of mission and of protecting or helping other heroes, so it fits right in with his character. I also liked how they go for that very typical, quote, superhero acting completely out of character, so maybe he's possessed trope. And they flip it on its head by having Superman act aggressive, like there's something wrong with him, so that he can draw out the Silent Knight. And then they meet each other. He's like, okay, you're the person I was looking for. And then they go fight a dragon. I mean, that's just great. It's great stuff. And it's an eight-page story. Wade and Perez make it a tight eight pages, too, with the fifth page showing a great passage of time in their quest by having all of the various events of said quest illustrated in a full-page splash of the Silent Knight's helmet with all of the images inside the helmet. It's great, great artwork. And then they have the ice-breathing dragon. That's a great touch, by the way, because like, let's fight a dragon, but the dragon breathes ice. It's illustrated beautifully. And I love the way they use Superman's heat vision to create this shield, this aura around the knight so that he can be protected against the freeze breath. Yes, it's a quick battle. But they don't waste a lot of time in the issue, and they cram so much into the story that I didn't feel like I was cheated. Moreover, I went back and reread it just because I found it fun. The Teen Titans story is an eight-pager as well. Now, you tell me that George Perez is drawing the Teen Titans in any of their incarnations, and you've got my money. This particular adventure takes place after the Titans' first case, which is in The Brave and the Bold number 54, but before their second case, which is in The Brave and the Bold number 60. Aquaman's Wedding, like I said, takes place in issue number 18 of his own title, and that book was published smack in the middle of the two Titans' appearances. So when Wally West mentions that they'd been together on like all of one case, he was being accurate, and there was no guarantee that they'd ever team up again. In fact, the name the Teen Titans doesn't appear until the Brave and the Bold number 60. Neither does Wonder Girl. So what Wade and Perez do is they made this adventure fit right into DC's Silver Age as kind of a forgotten story. The idea that Garth puts way more emphasis on his friendship with Robin, Wonder Girl, and Kid Flash because he's a pretty lonely kid is accurate to his character and also a little heartbreaking, especially because the pretty bad way the rest of the Titans treated him in that original series. That led him to quitting the team for the first time. And the way the kids basically get in trouble and get seri a serious reprimand from the adult in the room, and happens to be Aquaman, is not only a great way to get the team up going, it also shows the dynamic 
between the Silver Age Justice League members and the Titans. In fact, the JLA has a cameo appearance because they're going to be guests at the wedding. Oceanus, by the way, is the villain of Aquaman number 18. This takes place right after they've defeated him in that issue. He never actually makes any further appearances in DC continuity, so his death here also fits into the way events are happening without disrupting it. And it's not like Wade and Perez needed to do that. After all, the only truly hardcore continuity nerds are going to be the ones who look back and see where this particular adventure fits in. But I appreciated the care and the attention that they gave it. The fight between Oceanus and our heroes is great. It sets up familiar character beat of Robin being the leader of the Teen Titans. In fact, they make him a leader after this adventure is over. They're smart about staying back and let Aquaman taking the fight head on before bringing up the rear and ultimately giving him the chance to land the final blow. And the clues that he gives both Garth and Aquaman to Magistus' ultimate goal are just enough to keep us interested without getting in the way. This Teen Titans story ends on a sweet note with the kids apologizing to Garth and then him getting excited to have them in Atlantis and giving them a tour. That original team started out as friends and really developed into a family over several decades of storytelling, and it's great to come back to these early days, especially when told by two masters of the craft. The ending, by the way, great cliffhanger. Metamorpho would make his first appearance in The Brave and the Bold number 57, which was published the very next month after an Aquaman number 18 came out. Here, he's obviously been possessed and has hidden himself inside of Hal's power battery. The image of him bursting through the glass of the lantern is a great cliffhanger, and we'll see the fight between Metamorpho and the challenges of the unknown when the next issue opens. But you'll be able to find that issue over on the Fortress of Bailey 2 network, as Michael Bailey is going to cover the team up between Superman and Ultraman. As for me, well, I've got some feedback on the last episode, and I will cover it right after this. Did you know? That Michael Bailey hosts a podcast. Yeah, I host or co-host a number of podcasts, actually. Did you know that Michael Bailey releases his podcast through the dark web? Now, that's not true at all. I release my shows on the regular internet. I don't even know how to get to the dark web. Did you know that Michael's financing comes from shady donors who make up a cabal of people that like to kick puppies and kittens? What are you talking about? I'm pretty much self-financed outside of a modest Patreon that I produce no extra content Did for. you know that Michael Bailey supports free podcasts for everyone and also works on his shows with potential foreign spies and anarchists? Of course I support free podcasts for everyone. And Andy isn't a spy of any kind. Bethany and Allison are hardly anarchists. And Jeff... Okay, you may have me there. Jeff is a little out there. Why would you support such a man by listening to his podcast? All right, that's enough of that. Can we, can we get rid of creepy voice guy? He, he's not working out. He really just isn't. You can't get rid of me that easily. I'm a scary voice that is meant to frighten people into... Okay, okay, that's that's better. Hey, everyone. My name is Michael Bailey, and I run the Fortress of Baileytude Podcasting Network. The Fortress is a collection of podcasts that I either host or co-host, all housed in a single place to make things easier on me. 
The shows in the network include From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which I host with Jeffrey Taylor, and is all about the Superman books published between 1986 and 2006. The Overlooked Dark Knight, a non-index index show, which is a Batman podcast that is about Batman stories hardly anyone talks about that I host with Andrew Leyland. Views from the Long Box, my comics-centric podcast that has been online since 2007. And the newest show on the network, The Superman and Lois Tapes, which I host with Allison and Bethany and is all about the CW series Superman and Lois. The network can be found at www.fortressofbailytude.com which also houses one of the web's largest repositories of information on the death and return of Superman from 1992 and 1993. You can subscribe to any of these programs through Apple Podcasts slash iTunes or through your favorite podcatcher, either a la carte or through the Master Feed, which has all of the episodes of all of the shows. The Fortress and its shows are also on Spotify, if you're into that sort of thing. The Fortress of Baileytude Podcasting Network. Doing my best to relieve boredom since 2007. The music on this trailer, Delay Rock, and Political Action Ad are by Kevin McLeod and are used under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Did you know? Oh, shut up! So my feedback is about episode number 142. That was the first of a two-parter about cover songs, which was a crossover with Fire and Water Records. Each episode is now out and you can listen to them. It's a total of six or seven hours, so it's a marathon of listening. But I listened to both of them and they really did turn out great. It was really fun to do and I'm really glad of the way it came out. Our feedback comes from Diabu Frank and it was left as a comment on Pop Culture Affidavit website. He writes, It's very difficult to comment on a three-hour podcast from a faulty middle-aged memory days after the fact without notes of any kind, but I'll do the best I can manage. The Bangles are an act I like too much to stick to just the hits, but not quite enough to dive into the full discography. So basically, I ripped my father's copy of A Different Light, listened to most of it, and supplemented with the singles. Anyway, yeah, Susanna Hoff's Hotness Eternal, but I also kind of dug Michael Steele, and The Bangles were one of my favorite bands of the 80s. That favor was concentrated in 1987 to 1989 with a hazy shade of winter coming out right when I started to become laser focused on popular music. I absolutely agree that their version completes the composition in a way that Simon and Garfunkel didn't, couldn't quite manage. It was so evocative, settling into the blue shades of the video on my emotional spectrum. The entire time Ryan was talking about the Gorge Gin and Juice, I was thinking about Dynamite Hacks Boys in the Hood, so I was glad Tom eventually referenced it. I was not aware that the unfamiliar bluegrass cover predated the one I knew by four years. I think they're both fun takes, but I have too strong an aversion to post-80s country to fully appreciate the Gourds. Those accents are triggering. Yeah, you know, Frank, country music, especially like popular country music, is a genre that I just really do not like. Um, so we're talking the Garth Brooks and moving forward from there. Uh, there's a couple of songs that, you know, I don't mind, but especially modern day current stuff is just, and mostly the male, male forward stuff is just, I have a really just aversive reaction to it. So I'm kind of there with you. Back into Frank's email. Not going to lie, I was literally physically sneering while Hailstorm's cover of All I Want to Do is Make Love to You played. 
I put the video on as I started typing this, and it wasn't as bad as when they were doing it faithfully, but all their dumb rock flourishes in the excerpt really turned me off. A clear case of not actually getting the material, but simply repackaging someone else's success for their own audience. It's heart doing adult contemporary, basically the best possible incarnation of that premise, but there's no denying that fact. This cover is like the punk rock poodle from Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. I'd never heard of Hailstrom before Neil talked about them on F&W Records, and after going on a dive based on his enthusiasm, I still don't get it at all. Aggressively uninteresting music. I stopped watching Rick Beto videos when he did a top rock singers list that was almost entirely old white men, but even more specifically when he left Ann Wilson off the list in favor of Lana Del Rey. Comparing Lizzie Hale to Ann Wilson isn't as unserious, but it did cross my mind. I've always contended that the Foo Fighters are underrated and Hole is underrated, in part because Dave Grohl is a guy who's easy to love and Courtney Love is a female who's very much is not. I appreciate more Hole songs more deeply than Foo Fighters, but Foo Fighters kicks ass and I will get defensive against anyone coming for either one of them. Especially in light of the sainthood of Kurt Cobain, it's important to note that Nirvana only have two objectively good albums and both its offspring can claim more. I'd stack either band against any of the greater esteem from other eras. Also agree that Gold Dust Woman approves mightily over the original, although I confess that I assume Tom was setting up landslides. Surely it'll turn up eventually. Um, if you want to hear us talk about the Smashing Pumpkins cover of Landslide, go listen to part two of that two-parter. Neil brings it into the, uh, I think it's it's either Neil or Ryan, but I think it's Neil, brings it into the uh, list over on the Fire and Water Records episode. Back to Frank. Frank says, Grohl has done so many covers, and I'd probably favor Down in the Park. As for Fleetwood Mac, my introduction was Tango in the Night and the touring around it. One of my girlfriend's moms was big into Mac and especially Stevie Nicks, so that probably amplified my awareness. Their greatest hits was in the selection of the first CDs we got as part of a record club promotion. Yeah, the Foo Fighters have a number of really good covers, and I I was listening to our recap of these lists, and I was listening to episode two, and I remembered I had completely forgotten to mention in our honorable mentions the Foo Fighters cover of Darling Nikki by Prince, mainly because I remember getting a lot of play. This would have been back in early in the early to mid-2000s because um, I was still in, in Arlington. I was still in Washington, D.C. area, and... It was being played quite a bit on WHFS, the modern rock station back then. And um, there was a story in the Washington Post, I believe, about how it had become this sort of minor sleeper hit, especially in the area. And people who were um, listening to it were not necessarily aware that it was a Prince song, and there was a story that surrounded one DJ going to track down a copy of the Prince song from like one of the sister stations so that they could play them back to back. And Darling Nikki is a, a pretty racy song as far as you know Prince lyric goes. I think it was one of the songs that was mentioned in the congressional hearings about dirty lyrics and songs that. Uh, eventually led to the parental advisory stickers on on CDs and stuff. All right, back to Frank's email one more time. 
He says, What I like about you is a song I was probably introduced to by Martha Quinn and or beer commercials. Yeah, that has ended up beer commercials or fast food commercials or other sorts of commercials. It, it was kind of, it's one of those 80s songs that's kind of ubiquitous at this point. Um, a number of other songs seem to find their way into commercials and things. Frank says, I always love that anti-glamorous video of the romantics singer drummer flinging spittle and pulling stupid faces while trying to perform both jobs simultaneously on camera. Since when is Poison a Tuesday night tribute band? Were they actually playing that high school from the video? I never made the connection between Jackass and It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. This is the Beck song, Jackass. Probably because I know the latter best from a not great whole cover on a Crow soundtrack. I favor Beck in general and in this specific case, although I'll give them the win on the bass song. The opening is kind of stand by me, though, isn't it? It kind of is. And thanks again for the thoughts, Frank. Um, I hope you wound up liking the second part as well over on Fire and Water Records. And I believe you commented over on the Fire and Water Records blog as well. So that was that was pretty cool. And and if anybody has made it through that episode and wants to talk about cover songs, feel free to send me some feedback or an email. I really, really liked doing that. I always like talking music, especially to those guys. And I'd love to have them on again or be on their show again, too. But that'll do it for me. This is a much shorter episode than the three hours that we did last time, but I think we all needed a break, especially me. Um, And I'll be back in June for another episode. If all goes according to plan, I'm going to be covering the first three of three nostalgia coming-of-age flicks. Each of those movies has a significant anniversary this year. For each of these episodes, I plan on having a special guest along with me. And the first one is a movie that turns 50 years old this year. And I will have Rob Kelly of Fire and Water, and most importantly of the Film and Water podcast and Fade Out, to talk to me about it. And that movie, George Lucas's 1973 classic, American Graffiti. So until then, go check out all of the other JLMA episodes out there. Feel free to send me more feedback. And as always, thank you very much for listening and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Paneris. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening and come back next time for more pop culture randomness. Music